Father, that's our prayer. We want to come into your presence. And your word says that we cannot swear falsely or lift up our soul to trust in an idol. And Lord, as we look at the seductive nature of idolatry, Lord, I pray today you would open our hearts and minds that we would begin to see clearly, Lord, may the areas in our own souls where we have been tempted and possibly even seduced by this element in our lives. And I ask, Father, that you would set us free. I pray today that we would leave here experiencing your grace, your goodness, and your kindness. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to get back to Revelation. I'm just going to, I want to just finish what I was beginning here last week. I, I kind of introduced, I broached the topic and I want to continue on this track. In 1983, believe it or not, I was pastoring back in 1983. That's 34 years ago. I was a youth pastor. And I had the privilege of being sent to Los Angeles. There was a minister's conference. Patty and I were there. And we heard a speaker by the name of Gordon McDonald. Gordon McDonald, a very good author, very good communicator. And, you know, I was really impressed when I was listening to him, his humility, his sincerity. But later there was a moral failure in his life. And he was very authentic and transparent. He received the discipline that his leadership base gave him. He went through a restorative process. And then eventually, he was a lot older than I was, he retired from pastoral ministry, continued to write. And later on, in a a leadership journal, in a magazine for pastoral leaders, he writes about some of the experiences in his younger days. And I found they were very insightful because what he brings out is how unsearchable are God's ways in our lives. Many times we create a kind of an understanding in our minds of who God is. We put God in a box. Isn't that kind of true? And then we have experiences as we journey through life that shatter our understanding of God. And sometimes we can become very disillusioned. Maybe some of you are sitting there and are going through an experience like that. So I think this is really important that you might listen and learn from a person's journey in their experience with God. He said that as he was a younger pastor, very successful, his church was really growing, uh, an organization, a very uh, high-profile Christian parachurch organization approached him about becoming their president. And he was advised by some wise people not to turn it down since they said, you know, God may be calling you into kind of a, a sphere of ministry that would affect the entire world. And he said, I had grown up in a tradition that finding the will of God was the most important pursuit of the Christian life. And so my mom as I was growing up, would say, if God calls you to do something and you say no, you'll be miserable the rest of your life. So he said, I took finding God's will quite seriously. And as the process moved along, I I realized that they had not just approached me, but they had approached, as he shared, some other candidates. And after a while, he began to realize that some of these candidates were extremely qualified. And and he was wondering, you know, if he should even keep his name in uh, in the mix of receiving this call. But eventually, uh, the person that was pursuing these candidates had narrowed down their sphere to two candidates. And he said, my wife Gail and I were part of that. They were still had our names on. We were one of the two they were looking at. And so uh, he, they, they came to, you know, to Boston where his uh, pastor was. He was outside of Boston there. And he said, we knew that the former president had literally destroyed his marriage because he had given himself so fully to this ministry. So there was a little tentativeness in both he and Gail's life. That's his wife's name. 
But he says, but slowly we warmed to the idea. And since God, since we had a long vacation coming from the church, we decided to seclude ourselves in our home for about five weeks there. Um, And we began praying. And neither Gail nor I had ever asked God for omens or signs or, you know, to determine our future direction. He said, but during those weeks, there was a sense, you know, what we were reading, how we were sensing, people talking, praying. We kind of felt like, yeah, God is directing us in this direction. It seemed to be pointing to that. We felt God was saying, this is going to happen. And as the search process reached its final point, they were going to hear that weekend, uh, he said, I decided to basically, well, they, they phoned. They brought us in for the last interview. And when we were flying back, he said, my wife, Gail, said, you're going to be the next president. He said, that was really strange. He's not that kind of person to make those kind of pronouncements. And so he said, I called my staff to meet with me after service on a Sunday night so that they could meet at our home. And we would you know, tell them that we were going to step down. We felt we owed them you know, to hear first from us. And so they'd call their staff in, but Sunday afternoon came and went, and the phone hadn't rung. And so here the staff shows up. He has no idea what's going to happen. So he decides to, you know, because he was like, what do I say, you know? And so he finally decides to tell them what's been happening in his life. And so he and Gail sat down and been sharing about the last four months what was happening. And, uh, and then eventually the phone rang. He went to answer the phone. And so he was stunned because they actually selected the other person. He was so shocked, he didn't know what to say. He stumbled, he said, I stumbled into the living room to tell our staff the news. And I said rather stoically, well, you've been with Gail and me on many occasions when God has said yes, but now God has said no. And you'll get to see how we handle the no. And after the staff left, he said, I canceled the church elders meeting that he had planned the next morning to give his resignation and canceled his reservation to fly to this new location. I mean, he was so certain he was going to get this position. He says, I was back to work at 8 o'clock in the morning as if nothing had happened. But 10 days later, the full force of what had happened came cascading into my soul. I kind of, you know, submerged into a time of deep despair and disillusionment. At some sort of a lower level, you know, I was talking to God, but I was angry and frustrated. And I said, God, you've made a perfect fool out of me. You know, here you drew me to the finishing line and then you said, sorry, you're not it. You know, he was really upset. I says, and what really bothered him in his mind was he says, I don't know your language. You're speaking a different language than what I've been trained to understand. I was questioning God, something I had never done earlier in my life. I doubted whether, I began to doubt whether it was possible to even hear from God. How many get a sense that this person's really being rocked? He's a pastor. He's a Christian leader. And says, during this period, I resigned from Grace Chapel out of exhaustion, disillusionment, and bewilderment. By candidating for that other position, I had lost trust from the leaders of our church. That was 1984. My world had fallen apart. And now I could say this over a decade later. Now he's writing, you know, about this incident. And he said... I had to surrender to a much deeper and more mysterious God than what I had known to that point. You see, one of the sad things is that we think we really know God. And, and yet I read things like the book of Job, who Job was a godly person who really knew God, and yet his world just came crashing in. And as we journey through the book, and a number of years ago I preached through that entire book, 
I began to point out that there were things that Job had to discover and learn about God. And, I, and one of the things over, you know, I've been a Christian over 40 years. I've discovered that, you know, my understanding of God has developed and has deepened. Yes, I've had, you know, it's not, it's not different in some ways than what it was initially, but the, it's broadened and deepened and, and matured. And, and some of the things that I once thought, I realized that that was quite, you know, underdeveloped and immature. There's a better understanding of this. And so one of the things that he came away from this experience is simply this. He says, uh, oh, I'm not, we're not moving here, guys. Oh, okay. Don't expect everything to be cozy with God, for he's a big God, and his ways are beyond us. Well, that's a very interesting thought. Now, that, that can really shatter some people. But I think it's important that we have that because so often we can become disillusioned with God. And the reason we're disillusioned is because, first of all, we have an illusion. You know, at the root of disillusionment is the idea of an illusion. An illusion is something that's not real. It's like a mirage in the desert, right? It's something we want, but it's not reality. And, you know, when we're a brand new Christian, it's really amazing. You can pray and God answers prayer. And it just seems like you ask and God answers. And then there comes a day when you pray and there's nothing. God doesn't answer. God's trying to teach you that you have to learn to trust him. And I've discovered over the years that this Christian life is really a life of absolute trust in God. And it really comes down to that. Um, when we become disillusioned, it may be that we've had a wrong concept or understanding regarding the nature of God. And I believe that that is one form of idolatry. That we actually create in our minds what God is like, but God is beyond even that. And so we're limiting ourselves to this conception of God. And in a sense, it's not the true God. It's not the God of the Bible. It's the God that we have an understanding of. Or sometimes we see God acting in a way or not doing something that we think he should do. And we're upset with him because we say to ourselves, if I was God, I would do this, right? You know, when you're young, you think, oh, if God would just do this miracle and heal this person, everybody would believe, right? And then we read in the scriptures later on that that's not exactly what happens. As a matter of fact, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and people still didn't believe. Can you imagine a person coming back from the dead? Someone by the name of Lazarus came back from the dead. And some people were so, you know, fixated on the fact that Jesus was not who he said he was, that they went to the religious leaders to have him killed because he raised somebody from the dead. How many think, you know, if we, and so sometimes we have a very superficial understanding. God actually knows what's going on inside of the human hearts. And at the root of idolatry, I believe, are a number of factors, one of which is this mistaken concept regarding the nature of God. We often think God is like us. But the reality is God is unlike us, which is really great because now I have to go into the scriptures to find out what God is really like. And when I realize God is unlike me in certain ways, then I have to begin to change and move towards what God is truly like. And that's a healthy thing because God is unlike us in some aspects. It's as we get to know God for who he is, then and only then can we become like him. And I love that. And uh, that's a powerful thing. You know, you know in the past, I've, I've done a lot of studying on the issue of revival. As a matter of fact, I wrote a doctoral dissertation on revival, almost 300 pages. It's a lot. 
And I've considered this topic. And, and I, I realize that revival comes. Or revival is really, it's really dealing with the church. It's a renewing. It's a coming back to God. It's a turning away from things that we were clinging to. Usually they're, they're false things. The, the things that are actually idols in our lives. And we have to let go of those things. And it's a, it's a repentance from that stuff. Revival is not, you know, ultimately the fruit of it is a changed church. And when you have people that change, it affects the people that they're relating to. And a lot of times you and I distort the image of God for people up beyond us. And so the closer I get to God, the more I can reflect who he is to people beyond my life. And that's important. God wants us to be dynamic witnesses. Well, revival comes as, as God's people address their idolatry, their issues. As a matter of fact, the whole Old Testament is addressing the issue of idolatry. If you haven't thought about it, what's going on? Israel is in relationship to God. Israel is described as the bride of, of, of Yahweh, the bride of God. And when we come to the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And there's a sense of this uh, covenant loyalty, this faithfulness, this relationship commitment that's being made. And God who was faithful to fulfill his side of the relationship, but yet Israel kept messing up. She kept becoming unfaithful. And what was she doing? She began to trust the gods of the nations around her. Didn't she do that over and over and over again? So she was unfaithful to God. And what the end result was that they ended up in exile. They ended up losing out from the promises and the provisions of Almighty God. They took God's provision and even used it to, you know, to be unfaithful to God. But unfortunate for us today, idolatry is far more prevalent within our church culture than we realize. And I think that's something we don't understand. And that's what's hindering a lot of times what we want to see happen in our nation or in our province and in our communities. Because, you know, we can't t- expect people who are non-believers to behave like believers. How many think that's, that's kind of crazy to have that kind of an expectation? Isn't that kind of nuts? And a lot of times as Christians, we expect people to behave like that. Go, forget that nonsense. That's, they're behaving like in, in, the, in the sense that they're living out a value system that reflects the culture in which they're living in. But unfortunately, the church needs to be reflecting the values of God. You and I need to be a witness of who God really is. And the closer you and I become, uh, get to God and the more we become like Him, the more clearly we're reflecting who God is. And, and it draws people towards God. But if you and I have a wrong understanding of God or a distorted understanding of God or we're embracing the idols that the culture's embracing, now we're reflecting nothing to them. And that's why we're having a minimal and a marginal impact in our culture today. And so it's important that we sit down and evaluate, God, what is it in our lives? What are we pursuing after? God, are you the ultimate pursuit in our lives? Or have we allowed the seduction of idols to move us away from that. And so uh, how can we identify if idolatry is an issue in our own hearts? It's a great question. How can I identify that? Well, I think there are three aspects today as we look at this issue that will help us to understand uh, the, you know, really our relationship with God, you know, the nature, the issue of idolatry. I think we need to understand. The first one is truly, what is the nature of idolatry? What is it? And are we guilty of it? Because a lot of times we don't even think about it. We just prayed the prayer here in Psalm 24, right? 
I have not sworn to be deceitful, nor have I lifted up my soul to an idol. In other words, I'm not putting my trust in an idol. Am I putting my trust in idols, or am I truly putting my trust in God? It's a very good question. Richard Keyes describes an idol as something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. Hmm, Interesting. All sorts of things are potential idols, depending only on our attitudes and actions towards them. In other words, you know, what, he, what he's basically saying is anything that I put in place of God, anything that I give preeminence in my life to, anything that displaces God from my life, that I'm looking to them, they may not even be bad things. A lot of times our idols are not necessarily evil. It's just that we've put them in the wrong priority in our lives. It becomes an idol. If this is so, how do we determine when something is becoming or has become an idol? Idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. As a matter of fact, usually they don't. As men, I would even argue from the Old Testament that if the Israelites never forsook Yahweh. They just embraced the idols of the land as well. So there was a, a syncretistic or a merging of ideas. And I think what's happening in the church world today is that's what we tend to do. We take, you know, the things of God and then we blend it in with what the culture's doing and we create something that's uniquely different than what the world has, but it's not exactly what God has in mind for us either. And we've created this false structure. And that's what happened when Elijah came on the Mount of Carmel. He said, how long will you, you know, halt between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. But you guys are trying to do both. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, it is impossible to serve God and money. You either serve one or the other. You cannot serve both. It's impossible. You'll either love one or hate one. You'll either respect one or despise one, he said. You can't do both of them. Sometimes we try. Sometimes we think we're succeeding at doing both. But the reality is, as we're about to see, idolatry is so seductive that we think we're doing okay, but we're really not. And I know why not. How do you know you're not doing good, Pastor? How do you know that idolatry is at root in your life? Here, let me give you some qualifications of, of how you can test it. Number one, if I'm discontented. If I'm discontented in my life, I have idols in my heart. If I, if I don't find that I have, you know, I'm not at peace and there's no, there's no joy in my life, there's probably some idols hanging around. If, if I, I've lost a sense of significance, meaning, and purpose in my life, it's probably because some idols have actually gotten into the place where God is supposed to be in my life. So those are, those are some little tests that we can ask. So, you know, you have to be honest with yourself this morning. You can say, oh, I'm okay, no problem with me. Or you can say, you know what, deep down inside, there's an unrest, there's a discontent, there's a frustration. There, you know, maybe there's an idol there, and I need to identify what that idol is. You know, so why do they arise? Well, um, Idolatry begins with the counterfeiting of God because only with a counterfeit of God can people remain the center of their lives and loyalties. Autonomous architects of their futures. You know, one of the reasons why we don't want God to be God is we're afraid that if God was really in control of our lives, then we would have to do something he doesn't want us to do. That's one reason. We, 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 we think we know better than God. I'm going to argue with you today. God knows better than you. And God knows better than me. God actually has a better plan for your life than you have. And once you discover that, that God is not, you know, a party pooper or joy robber or to make your life miserable and to make things tough, you know, 
God is actually very loving. He designed us for a purpose. And when we discover that, our lives are going to be so much the greater for it, far more enriched. Something within creation will be adulterous, adulterously inflated to fill the God-shaped hole in the individual world. But a counterfeit is a lie. It's not the real thing. So what he's saying here basically is God's designed us to have a relationship with him. That, that, that doesn't make sense. We're created in his image. We're created to relate to him. And so we have this huge capacity in our soul to relate to an infinite being. Now, if we're not relating to this infinite God, we have this huge hole in our soul. There's this vacuum in our lives, and we can't function with a vacuum. So what do we do? You know, anytime there's a vacuum, we have to fill it with something. And so what, what we fill it with is anything but God. And all of those things that we're filling it with, that's what an idol is. Okay, it can be a person, it can be a thing, it can be a desire, it can be an aspiration, it can be all kinds of stuff. Fear can be an idol. You know, we're serving fear. You know, that's why we do what we're doing. These are all can be idols. It must present itself through self-deception, often with images suggesting that the idol will fulfill promises for the good life. See, we believe that if we get what we want, that we'll be happy. Isn't that kind of why we're doing what we're doing? I know if I just get this, I'll be happy. I'm not happy right now, therefore I'll go after this. But if it's not what God wants for us, we will not be happy. We will actually destroy ourselves. We will be empty at the end. And a lot of people make these bad choices. So I think when we put our hope in things or people above God, those things or people become idols to us. Not that they're bad, it's just that they become an idol. We're putting too much confidence, too much trust in them. We need to learn to trust God. It defiles us because we're looking for something or someone other than God to bring satisfaction to our lives. And the tragedy is idolatry promises a ton and delivers little. It'll always leave you empty. So Paul, the apostle, if you don't think this is serious, you think this is an Old Testament idea, we'll get to that text in Exodus. But look what Paul says in Ephesians 5.5. This is one of the reasons why I'm talking to you about it. It says, for of this you can be sure. This is a certainty. No immoral Impure, I just kind of define impure as unholy or unlike God, ungodly, or greedy person. Now he, 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 he qualifies. Now he says those three things, those are, he's describing those as idols. He says such a person is an idolater. In other words, when you put those things ahead of, you see, you're not, you're not behaving like God. You're not pursuing God. You're, you're p- putting a person ahead of God. You know, oh, I think this person's going to meet my needs. I'm attracted to this person, you know. Or I, I'm, I'm trying to fill, I'm trying to put people into my life to satisfy me. I'm, and even if I'm, you know, I may not be sexually immoral, but I might, I might be immoral in, in the sense that I'm, I'm letting people to try to satisfy the void inside my heart. A lot of people do that. Put friends and others in. It says here, this person, or a greedy person, such a person as an idolater has, has any inheritance. Such a person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In other words, they don't have any inheritance. What does that say to you? It says, if you're an idolater, you can't go to heaven. Because what you've done is you've put a substitute. You're basically saying no to God and yes to something else. And really, heaven is about God. Heaven is about having God in, in, in that place. And so we get a funny, funky, I call it a funky idea because people are walking around thinking, I'm going to go to heaven. Why would you want to be in heaven? God's in heaven. If you don't want God now, why would you want him then? You see, we've got to think, you know, clearly. There's, there's implications to this kind of a thing. So Paul is basically telling us here, and he's warning us, be careful that we don't become idolaters. 
idols will actually rob you of heaven, of the kingdom of God. It will, you will forfeit God's grace in your life. That's a kind of a scary thought. We'll read that in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8 in a little bit. Isn't that a scary thought? This is serious stuff, folks. You see, I think even in the church world, we can actually promote idolatry. Actually, preachers can give a false message and actually teach that, you know, certain things, you know, like gain is godliness. That's a false message, by the way. That's actually promoting greed, and that's a form of idolatry. Can you imagine coming before God and thinking you're going to be in heaven, you end up God saying, I never knew you. You're an idol worshiper. That would be scary. And just imagine the great condemnation to the preachers who actually say those things and actually tell people it's okay to be an idolater and still get to heaven. Actually, Paul says, no, you're, you're deceiving yourself. So I feel a great moral responsibility to say, hey, we better examine ourselves and say, listen, idolatry is a very significant thing and it's a very subtle thing and we have to address it. So... Let's take, how do people become idolaters? That's a great question. And I think the classic story is found in Exodus 32. And that's where I want us to go. The making of a golden calf in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. Now, idolatry is basically taking things into our own hands. You better write that down. By the way, is anybody here tempted to take things into their own hands? I got my hand up. So I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm preaching to myself as well as to you. You know, uh, it's usually reflected by our sense of impatience. Is this an impatient culture by any chance? Well, think of what happened. Remember when Saul was asked to wait for Samuel to show up? Remember that story? And this is in 1 Samuel 15. You can read it this afternoon. What happens is... You know, there's, Saul is ready to fight a battle. The army is ready to fight against him. He's, his people are getting fearful. People are leaving his ranks. He feels the pressure. Samuel hasn't showed up. He feels like he's got to take it into his own hands. So Saul does something that he's forbidden by law to do, and that's to sacrifice instead of a priest. And he does it. And then Samuel shows up. And Samuel says to Saul, because you've, of this, because you did this impatient act, you've lost the kingdom. Now, I've got to ask the question, when did Saul lose the kingdom? At that moment? No. Well, yes and no. Let me ex- clarify what I mean. He lost it at that moment because he disobeyed God, but the effects of that did not happen until he died. He was the king throughout an entire year, probably 40 years. So in one sense, he sinned and lost the kingdom, but he lost it for his children and their children. He lost it in a legacy. Are you following this? And so David rises up. God says, I'm going to choose somebody else. And David's legacy is such that when David obeyed God, even though he had problems in his life, his children and his children and his children, they continued to be kings, right? Remember that? Yeah. What am I saying to us? Here's the problem with sin in our lives. When we first sin, the assumption is made that because nothing has really changed, it can't be that bad. Can I tell you what's going to happen? Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, God says, when you sin, you shall die. Let me ask the question. Did they physically die at that moment? No, they did not. But did they, did they die at that moment? Yes, they did. They died to what God's purposes and will for their life was. And they actually brought in sin and death and judgment upon humanity. Did they not? And so we need to understand some things about how this thing works. Now, 
I think a lot of our difficulties is that we, are, we don't really trust God. And that's why we take things into our own hands. That's why Saul did. He was afraid he acted, and eventually it cost him his kingdom. Lucy Shaw says, I'm an impatient, restless person. Slowing down and waiting seems to be a waste of time. Yet waiting seems to be an inevitable part of the human condition. How many know that that's true? In life, there's a lot of waiting. Isn't that true? And that usually with God, you know, a lot of things are legitimate. But what we do is we make them illegitimate when we don't wait. That's my point. And so we have to learn how to wait. And how many know that one of the problems of, of a child is that they're immature? And one of the, 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 one of the element, characteristics of an immature child is impatience. They want it right now. And we know that, and they've studied this. This has even done studies on this. People who know how to defer gratification are people who are going to be far more successful in life than those people who cannot defer gratification. How many know that's true? It is the truth. And so God is teaching us that we have to learn how to be patient and wait. And that's very difficult for a lot of people. Henry Nouwen once wrote, waiting is a period of learning. That's why God allows us to wait. We're learning in the waiting. The longer we wait, the more we hear about him for whom we are waiting. Sometimes we're just saying, God, why don't you make this happen? God says, I'm teaching you some stuff. You know, I've, I've had years where God, I was saying, God, why isn't this happening? And God says, I'm teaching you. I said, what are you teaching me? Patience, endurance, perseverance, long-suffering. How many know those are all fruits of the Spirit, by the way? We have to learn those things. Some of you are frustrated in this room because God is not doing what you want him to do now. God goes, no. It's not that I'm saying no. I'm I'm trying to teach you some very profound lessons. I'm trying to help you mature and grow up. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Romans 8.22 says, Waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. I like that. Where is that? Okay, here it is. It says, we are enlarged in the waiting. Isn't that true? Pregnant mother, she's being enlarged in the waiting. (laughs) He says, during a time of waiting, God is vibrantly at work within us. So the next time you think God is not working and you're waiting, that's because God is actually deeply working, but he's deeply working in you. And that's what we need to understand. Wow. God utilizes crisis in our lives to discover idolatry in our hearts. How many can honestly say that in crisis, sometimes you've been surprised at your good response, and then sometimes you've been described at your poor response? Anybody had that experience? And isn't it crisis that brings this stuff out? Listen, everything that you co- it comes out of you is actually in you. Pastor, you just did not make my morning. <laughs> I hated to hear that. But it is the truth, right? And we make all kinds of excuses. I was grumpy because I was hungry. I was grumpy because, you know, I didn't get enough sleep last night. Yeah, but it's still inside of you, right? We can make all the excuses we want, but the stuff is inside of us. So times of waiting are a test of our trust and commitment to God. Our world today is filled with human impatience. And in this culture, that is extremely right. It's another characteristic of of a society that has no time for God. Without a perception of activity, people turn to new gods and to new leaders. It is the truth. Henry Blackaby and Claude King warn of our unhealthy reliance upon human leadership apart from God. He said the reason the people of the world are so strong on leadership is because they do not acknowledge God as their leader. Is that powerful? You know why people are so enamored with politics and leaders? Because they're hoping somebody else will take responsibility and straighten things out. Because we have no patience for God. 
So they set up their own leader. They also write books on leadership to teach people how to lead. Leaders turn to these books for help because they're not turning to God for direction. Boy, that's strong, right? They have turned to a substitute for God. Human leaders become the substitute for God and their methods become the substitute for God's ways. Now you say, is that real? Listen, I'm going to say a lot of stuff about church life. You know, when I was a young, I've been a pastor now for 35 years. I can say a few things now after 35 years. I probably couldn't say earlier. First 12 years, 13 years, everything we did, it worked. It was successful. We built a great organization. This church became actually the largest at the time in our city. But you know what I learned? Building an organization is easy. That's nothing. Building people is far harder work. So you know what happened? God says, I'm going to teach you a lesson. He led Patty and I. I believe he lured us into a trap. It says so. In Psalm 68, he, he will lure you into a trap. God will, God's the one that did it. He brought us to Seattle. He goes, I have an experience for you that you're going to learn a big lesson. And for the next almost four years, God began to take me apart. How many have ever had God reduce you? God humble you? God break you? It's a good thing. So then he remakes you. And what I learned was the church is about the people, and it's about building people. And you know, I've taught leadership. Nehemiah, wasn't he a great leader? He built a wall in two months with the help of the people, mobilized him, inspired him. God moved powerfully. They built a wall in two months. Nehemiah stayed and governed the, the state of Judah for 12 years. And so the question I ask the class when I teach on leadership is, what is Nehemiah doing now after the two months are over? What's he doing for the next, you know, 11 years and 10 months? He's building people. And how many know, if you're a parent here today, how many know building, parenting a child is not a two-month job? How many know that's true? And how many know that it's a lot harder to build people than it is to build an organization? And how many know people are up and they're down and they're forward and they're backwards and they're sideways? And they do all kinds of crazy things. Yeah, it's a lot harder. And so if you're really a leader and God's called you to help build people, you've got to stay a while to do it. Now, this 2018 will be 30 years in this church. So, I mean, I, I do believe this. And I learned that God has a spiritual means or way that brings us to the right spiritual ends. And God actually uses failure, brokenness, and disappointments to make saints. And all the younger saints are going, really, Pastor? That's a bummer. And all the older saints are going, yeah, I've been through it. And I know exactly what you're talking about. You know what? The, the way of the world is all about self-promotion, success, and always being on top of the pile. Isn't that true? And we, 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 we rejoice over every win. But you know, for everybody that's winning, there's a whole bunch of people losing. It is the truth. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're losing right now, rejoice. Because you're winning in a different way. God's working on character development. And that's extremely important. Let me move on to the second aspect here. And it's simply the consequence of idolatry in our lives. There's always a cost to turning away from God. So what happens in the story? You know, we read it in Exodus 32 here. Um, Basically, in verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. I mean, he's been gone now almost six weeks, Aaron. Remember, he went up 40 days and 40 nights. 
But nobody, nobody told the people, you know, it's going to take that long. How many know people get impatient? Maybe something happened to Moses on the mountain. Maybe he got devoured by an animal. I, where is this guy? We don't have a leader. We're in trouble, you know. So they, they say to Aaron, Aaron says, well, okay, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Rule number one, it always costs you when you disobey God. It always costs you when you embrace an idol. It's going to cost you. It's going to, you're going to be diminished by it. Idols promise a lot. They demand a lot, but they diminish the people involved. It's always the way it works. The wages of sin, which is idolatry, is always death. What was different between Aaron and Moses? Moses was developed through his wilderness experience. Aaron was strictly a product of Egypt. And look what happens. You know, God took the Israelites out of Egypt. You know, that, that, that happened pretty fast. But to get Egypt out of the Israelites took 40 years. God takes you and I out of sin in a moment when we come to Christ. But it takes a lifetime to get the sin that we've spent cultivating out of us. That's called sanctification. That's the work that God is actually doing in our lives. So Aaron comes along, and, and, then, and then it's interesting. In verse 4, then he said to the, the Israelites, he says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Really? From where do we get our image of God? From the culture in which we're living in? Or from the pages of the Holy Bible? And I'll tell you today, God has been skewed by our culture. Right? You know, we have a mistaken notion about God's love. We think tolerance towards sin is love. We think that we're loving people by tolerating them in their sin. You know what we're doing? We're actually destroying them. If we were really loving, we would say to them, I love you as a person, but I love you too much to leave you in a state that's actually bringing about self-destruction. That's the reality. We need to hear this. We're not doing people a favor by saying, oh, yeah, but I get quoted by Christians all the time. Yeah, but Jesus was a friend of sinners. I'm going, yeah, that's right. He was. And what did he do about it? He died on a cross for their sin. Sin must be a big problem or he wouldn't have had to die on that cross for them, right? For you and for me. Uh, Our behavior is an indication of our understanding of who God is. Or said another way, our understanding of God shapes our behavior. So I can basically tell by my behavior what my understanding of God is. And I can tell by your behavior what your understanding of God is. Isn't that amazing? You shall know them by their fruits. I think Jesus said that, didn't he not? Sure he did, Matthew 7. Listen to what Colossians says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That almost makes it sound like you know, your evil behavior has caused you to be at enmity or have a, you know, your, your thinking is wrong. But you know, in my footnotes, in my Bible, it says this verse could be and probably should be translated. We are enemies in our minds as shown by our behavior. The behavior is the effect. It is the outcome of a wrong understanding. The cause of our wrong behavior is that what is transpiring in our minds. Because really the battle is happening in our heads. This is where the battle's happening. And what you think is going to affect how you live. 
So you've got to renew your minds. That's what the Bible talks about. Paul tells the Corinthians that the spiritual warfare, we're, we're not fighting with carnal, carnal weapons. The, you know, it says we're, we're fighting against principalities and powers, but where are they being fought? In our own minds. It says taking thought, every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. So you see, last week I talked about managing our emotions. Some of you were here. Did you like that sermon? Yeah, it was good. It helps you understand. But here's what you need to know about your thinking. What happens when you get wrong thoughts? What do you do with them? You need to bring the scriptures to bear. You say, God, that's a wrong thought, but here's what your word says, and I'm going to focus on what you say, and I'm going to do with what you say rather than what I think and what it, rather than what I feel. I want you to change my thinking. By the way, changing your thinking is what repentance is. See, repentance is a change of mind. You're coming into an agreement with God. But look what happens. In verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Yahweh, to the Lord. So now Aaron is now saying the golden calf is now God. Isn't that an amazing statement? Look at Psalm 106's evaluation of that event. It says, at Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast for metal. They exchanged the glory for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them who had done great things in Egypt. In other words, they had so distorted who God was that that the psalmist later on says, they weren't even worshipping God anymore. And I'm going to say this, that if you and I have a syncretistic or a blended view of who God is from the culture and the Bible, we really are not worshipping the God of the Bible. You said strong, Pastor. I'm going, yeah. But listen, if you don't know, know who God is, you can't become like God. You're going, to be a, you're going to be pursuing a distorted image, and you will become like that which you worship. And that's true of all of us. We all become like what we worship. So let's get the right image of who God is. The next day, it says, verse 6, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. Basically, they had church. They went through all the right motions, but their concept of God was distorted. And as Moses comes down from the mountain, he now assesses the church service. In verse 25, God's talking to Moses. It says, Moses saw the people were running wild. Aaron had let them get out of control and had become a laughingstock to their enemies. They had cast off restraints. It was wild. It didn't bring glory to God. They were marring their testimony to the world around them. When you and I have a distorted understanding of who God is... We are no longer reflecting the glory of God. We're reflecting what we think we're worshiping. Isn't that sad? Why don't we just get to know God? Why don't we get to know the true and the living God and allow his love and light to flood our lives so that we are now becoming a witness and we're reflecting who he is to the culture around us. Some of you are doing a great job of it. Some of you are struggling with it. So what are the consequences of idolatry? I'll just give you five of them really quickly. False worship always creates lives which are out of control. If your life is out of control, it's a mess. Maybe there's idolatry there. Number two, it brings a reproach in the eyes of God's enemies. It fuels the fires of criticism towards the Christian and his God. Number three... You know, God in his mercy withdraws the intimacy of his presence. Notice God had to move his tent away from them because God says, if I'm near these guys, they're going to die. That was actually a mercy to withdraw his presence from them. Number four, idols rather than God. You know, when we worship idols rather than God, we forfeit the grace of God that's working in our lives. That's exactly what Jonah 2.8 says. Those who cling to idols, worthless idols, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. 
And finally, number five, ultimately, idolatry brings separation or death to relationships. And you know what? Sometimes, you know, we, you know I, I look at what's going on, and, and, and there's so many relationships that are falling apart today. Mark, this is true. You're, you're praying with me. All the ones. Reconciliation, marriages. What's going on? You know, it's like an epidemic. I'm going, it's because maybe we're, we have some idols that need to be taken down in our lives. Let me move to the third thing, and I'll close with this. How repentance brings renewal from idolatry. How can we get rid of the idols? Well, first of all, we have to identify that we have them. I mean, I think that's pretty important. You can't get rid of something you don't know exists, right? It always begins with prayer in our closet. Notice verse 11 of chapter 32. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power in a mighty hand? Moses appeals to God. I love that. You know, it starts with praying. And you know, one of the things I discovered when I studied on revival is that in every revival, you always find prayer. It's just there. But you know what you also find in every revival? Confession of sin. And, you know, sometimes we have these revivals today, and I don't even think they're revivals. I just think that they're a new, a new form of, you know, how people are going to express themselves. A genuine revival brings genuine conviction of sin. In other words, God's Spirit now identifies what's in our life that needs to be changed. He just puts his finger on it. He says, you know what? You're putting this above God. Now, you want to know how radical <clears throat> we need to realize the seriousness of sin. Look what, look what it says here in this text. Verse 26. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Who is ever for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap his sword to his side, go back and forth to the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother, friend, and neighbor. How many go, This is radical, Pastor. Anybody think this is really radical? Do you think this is drastic? I think this is really, like, I don't like this. This is shaking me right out of my, my, my boots, right? Like, whoa, they're killing people. <clears throat> I, I think these guys think it's pretty serious. Now, I don't think that we should be doing this. And don't go out of here and go, okay, now I know what to do. Strap a sword and go out and start killing people. Wrong interpretation. Let me give you the New Testament nuancing of this verse, okay? Jesus says sin is so serious. He says this in Matthew 10, 37. Listen, he says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his hobby more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his job more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves money or pleasure or fame or whatever it is that you're pursuing more than me is not worthy of me. What is he basically saying? He's saying there should be nothing in our lives above him. Now, let me, let me tell you what's going to happen. The moment God is first in my life, I'm going to love Patty more, my wife. I'm going to love my children more than I ever have before. See, if I put them first, I will love them less. I've made them an idol, but it doesn't mean I love them more. It means that I'm looking to them to meet my needs. See, the day I stop looking to people to meet my needs, the day I stop looking to things to meet my needs, and this is the day I'm putting, saying, God, only you can meet my needs. You see, no human being, no matter how godly and good they are, can ever meet all of your needs. You know why? They can't meet all my needs. We are just far too needy. 
And God designed it that way. He designed you and I to have a relationship with him. He's created in our soul a capacity for an infinite being. And there's no human being that's infinite, right? And so anything less than that, you're just not going to be satisfied. The only satisfied person on this planet is the only ultimately contented person, totally satisfied person, the person full of joy and peace, the person who has significance and meaning in their life is the person who has surrendered their lives to the true and the living God and now has the right relationship with other people and actually you actually start loving people better. It's a healthier love. It's a better love. It's just beautiful. You will love your son and daughter more. Isn't that great? It's... All God is saying is get the right priority. So I'm going to close right now. We're going to stand, have the worship team come back. How many think idolatry is a pretty significant issue? Anybody think this is pretty significant? Is this, it is, isn't it? It is kind of challenging, isn't it? It is a little probing. You know why you go, Pastor, why do you preach like this? I mean, you know, this is really intrusive. This is almost like spiritual surgery. Because I'm going to answer to God one day. And my desire is that every person that I'm pastoring will be able to stand before Almighty God and say, I know you. And God will say back, and I know you. You have a right understanding of who I am. You forsook the idols that exiled my ancient people. You forsook the idols of my New Testament people. You put me above everything else. This culture, there's so many idols right now, so much pressure for your affection and your imagination. And God is saying, I want you. I want you. And anything less than putting God ultimately as everything in your life, you're going to diminish yourself. It's going to cost you far more than you think. People have lost their families. People have lost their future all because of idols in their lives. And so with every head bowed today, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't even know my own heart. That's why the psalmist prays, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. We're going to rephrase that just a tad and say, Lord, search me, O Lord, and see if there be any idols in me. If I'm putting a person, if I'm putting a goal, if I'm putting a desire other than for you above you in my life, Would you just speak to me right now? Because today, I want to leave this idol at the foot of your cross. I want to embrace you as my Lord. I want to get to know you, the true and the living God. Not, You know, I don't want to be disillusioned. I mean, Job finally came to a deeper understanding of who God was. See, Job came to a place of absolute trust in God. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He said, it doesn't matter what happens in my life. God, you're it. If I lose everything, it's okay as long as I have you. But if I lose you, I've lost everything. That's the place we got to be, folks. We got to get rid of these idols. We got to lay them down and say, God, you know, John, the very end of his life, what did he say? Love God and flee idols. <laughs> Interesting word, flee idols. Flee false substitutes. Flee these things that'll warp your value system diminish you as a human being. We need to embrace God's standard. You know, because if we get to know who God is and we begin to pursue him and become a worshiper of his, it'll change us. And as we become like him, we will become those living witnesses. And you know what's going to happen? We will have revival in our city 
Because when people look at us, they're going to go, I'm seeing what God looks like because I'm seeing it in your life. I'm seeing a true picture of what Jesus Christ is like. You know, it's a, one of the highest compliments I ever received was when my, one of my aunts said to me, when I look at you tonight as you've been talking to me, I see Christ. I see Christ. That is the highest compliment I've ever received. I see Christ. To see Christ in us is the highest compliment any person can give a Christian. Isn't that true? They're now seeing an image of what God is like. And you know what it does? It, wants, it draws people to himself. Or people will persecute us, just like they did Jesus. We should not be surprised by that. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Why? Because you're now reflecting the image of Christ. How many here say, you know, Pastor, would you pray for me and with me? I want, to, I want to dispose of any idol in my life. I want to make sure that, you know what, when I stand before Almighty God, there'll be nothing there to hinder me. That God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You took care of all those idols in your life. You overcame those things. You did not... Who can approach the Lord? Who can enter into his, his holy mountain? He who has not sworn deceitfully and has not put his trust in idols. That's why I read that psalm. It all ties together, folks. So, Lord, we do ask your spirit to come right now. Sweep over us as a congregation. Search our hearts, O oh God. See if there be any idolatry within us, O oh God. We want to lay those things at your feet today. We want to acknowledge, Lord, we've allowed maybe things or people to come in our path that has skewed our vision of who you are. And Lord, the most distinguishing characteristic of your people is the fact that you are in our midst. We are the people of your presence, oh God. That's, that's what distinguishes us from everybody else, is that we're children of your presence. Lord, I pray today, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your presence. And Lord, that'll only happen if we lay down what we're putting our trust in that's other than you. And so we choose today, as you're identifying right now, as the Holy Spirit, as you're moving through our hearts, you're identifying, yes, you're putting your trust in this. Maybe it's a fear or it's a desire that is overtaking your desire for God. Confess it before Almighty God. Say, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. Renew a right heart within me. Renew a right spirit within me. See, I'm quoting the Psalms. Renew a right spirit within me. Give me a heart after you that I want you and you alone. And I know that if, I, if that happens, I will love my spouse more. I will love my children in a better way. I'll love the people around me in a far better way. And I won't be intimidated. I won't be living in fear. I won't be living in frustration. I won't be living in doubt. I won't be living in despair. I won't be living in discouragement anymore because my confidence is in you. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today.